the second like a little itty bitty piece of doubt that comes from that anxiety creeps into your mind, that affects everything. And welcome back. Welcome aboard another part train. I'm one of your co-hosts, Evan Singer. I got my partner in crime, Matt Cermak, with me. What's up, Ev? We just had an awesome ride on the train, a type of ride we've never taken before in over 200 episodes. But before we get to that, if your golf game's off the rails, if you're sick of riding the struggle bus, you've come to the right place. The part train helps frustrated golfers enjoy the ride again on and off the course. Because if you can learn to smile through bad golf, you can smile through anything. This episode was a perfect example of that. The part train podcast unpacks the mental game with PJ Torpro's best-selling authors, CEOs, sports psychologists, anxiety experts like today, everyday golfers like you and me and more make the hardest game in the world feel easy and help you finally get back on track. This episode is presented by Roback Activewear, our favorite hoodie, polo, Q-zip, long sleeve performance tee, short sleeve performance tee, joggers, shorts. They do it all. Go to Roback.com, enter the code train, get yourself 15% off. If you forget the code, go to our link in bio at the par train, tap that link. It'll auto apply in your cart. No need to enter a code. If the code doesn't work, you've likely used it before. Maybe borrow your wife's email, do whatever you have to do. You didn't hear from us. Thank you to Roback as always. It's only worth buying stuff that you can wear on multiple occasions. Golf course, happy hours, work, play, errands, workout, you name it. Roback does it all. So we love the people over at Roback. Go support them. They support us. We were so fired up after this episode. We do this a lot, but especially this one. We start talking about it and I go, hey, sir, why don't we just start recording now? Because I want to hear this live for the first time. So it's real and authentic and impactful. So go ahead. I know you had a lot to say about this. No, look at the, at the end of the day, Ev, we've never, we've never done an episode like this. You know, we want to call it an anxiety round table. Mm-hmm. Never done anything like this. Some very, very powerful stories. And it's a little, you know, we've got Dr. Kevin Chapman, sports psychologist with Zach Zorkman, scratch player, plus, plus player, plus one. Yeah. but he's gone through some tough, tough times in his life. You know, and he really gets into it with kind of some just dealing with anxiety, dealing with panic on and off the course and how it relates. And boy, do we get some amazing stuff from K-Chap, Dr. Chapman. Yeah. And I don't know, this whole episode felt like a journey, like that just, just kept going places and going places mm-hmm. and, and just so positive. Fantastic. Yeah. So remember for context, we met Dr. Chapman through Dr. Brett McCabe, one of the top sports psychologists coaches, John Rahm, many top players in, in the world. And he said, if you want to do an episode on anxiety, don't talk to me, talk to Dr. Chapman, one of the top experts in phobia yep. and anxiety works with a lot of athletes, university of Louisville and episode 166 of how to let anxiety fuel your performance has been one of my favorites we've ever done. So this oh, yeah. was his second time back. And to your point, sir, it's so funny early on when starting this podcast, it's easy to be like, you know, I want a big guest so that we can reach more people. Right. But now I think it's such a thrill to bring on everyday people like you and me and give them access to the amazing experts we've had over the years to give people this relatable conversation that they normally wouldn't have had the chance to have so that we can impact more people. And this was a perfect example. Zach has had a ton of really painful experiences with anxiety on and off the course that doctors couldn't figure out, right? He tells that story. And then you've got one of the top anxiety experts walking us through how to handle it intermixed with our, you and and my experiences for life and sport too. Yeah. Guys, this is an absolute treat. And again, unlike anything we've ever done. 
So if you struggle with anxiety, or even if you don't even know it's anxiety, but you have a moment where you spiral in the round and a bad shot turns into a bad round, this episode could help you. Thank you to Dr. Kevin Chapman and Zach for coming on the show. I hope it'll help a lot of you. If it does help you, do us a solid, send us a review at Apple Podcasts, tell your story and Spotify so that more people jump aboard. We can help them through your story. Give us a follow at The Part Train. Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok are the three best places to do it. We post multiple times a day. It'll keep you on track throughout the week before you're around. And no matter what you're feeling, no matter how much your heart starts to beat, no matter if your hands go numb, what do we got to get back to, Sarm? Just enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride, guys. Take care. Take care, guys. No, seriously, guys. Take care. Dr. Kevin Chapman. Kevin Chapman, welcome aboard. And Zach Zortman, an anxiety roundtable. Welcome aboard, boys. We're excited to have you. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks, Evan. Thanks for having me. Before we get to this, guys, we gave some context in the intro. I just want to give a little bit of context for anyone that's tuning into this. Probably means you've had some sort of experience with anxiety. I want to say, before you start diving into this full interview, I think it actually could be helpful to go back to episode 166 with Dr. Kevin Chapman, letting anxiety fuel your performance to give a really good foundational knowledge and education on what are the triggers? How can we deal with it? And then if you come back to this episode with Zach's story, I think it might even be more impactful, but I'll let you, the listener, decide if you'd rather listen to 166 after the fact or before. But before I kick it to you, Zach, for you to tell your story, I want to say I'm excited that Zach is a plus handicap. I really am because I think a lot of people in the golf space and in life think that if I struggle with anxiety, the people that are quote better than me must have it all figured out. Most people assume that the plus handicap, someone that can shoot under par goes to the golf course thinking they got it all figured out. Worst case scenario, they shoot a few over, right? Whereas someone like me, who's a high single digit handicap has struggled with this too. And I think it's going to help a lot of people when they realize that Zach, you're a plus handicap. You're a really good player. So Zach, I want you to give the listeners context about your story. You sent us a very heartfelt message, which is why we picked you. I think it can help a lot of people. So let's kick it to Zach. And then we'll just jump into this round table and let Kevin dive in like he normally does. Cool. Yeah. If you had put that message out on your Instagram a year ago, I probably wouldn't have had a story. I've dealt with anxiety, you know, most of my life, most social anxiety, but I'd never had the physical symptoms that came with it. It was mostly just my brain telling me I'm not comfortable here. I want to get out of here. Early this year, though, really kind of out of nowhere, there wasn't anything in particular that, you know, we've been able to dial in that triggered it. I had what to me felt like heart attack symptoms. I was just laying in bed with my wife. Heart rate got crazy high. I got the spins real bad. My hands and feet were tingling, going numb. So my wife, who's medical, you know, said, hey, let's, you know, do a few things. Let's hydrate. Let's take some breaths. Let's just see if these symptoms kind of, you know, go away. And eventually they did. I was able to fall asleep. But the next day I didn't really feel any better. So I went in first thing the next day into the doctor. They did an echo. They did an x-ray. Everything looked totally fine. So they weren't really sure, you know, what that was all about. You know, fast forward exactly a week. I was out with some friends watching Final Four game. Same thing started to happen while we were having dinner. But this time I couldn't swallow. I could hardly breathe. I was, my heart rate was 
higher than it was the last time. One of my friends drove me to the ER, got admitted, and, you know, they ran a bunch of tests. Everything came back totally normal. Blood was normal. Uh, you know, my heart looked normal. Everything was totally fine. My blood pressure was elevated, but it came back down as time went by. So they sent me home. They had me follow up with actually a gastroenterologist. They thought, you know, maybe some of that stuff might have something to do with it. So I had a scope and, you know, I went under and had a scope, you know, everything totally normal there. So then they thought maybe it's my ears. So I went in and saw an ear specialist, everything totally normal there. My hearing's fine. You know, there's no issues with any of that. Finally, you know, I'm sitting down at probably my eighth or ninth visit to my primary care. And I had fallen into the, I'm Googling everything, you know, so obviously I'm having a heart attack. I'm dying. That's it. This is it. You know, I'm telling my son, I love him, telling my wife, I love him, telling my family, I love him. That's it. But, you know, I came across, you know, anxiety, which to me wasn't even something that was in my mind. And then of course, from there, I found panic attacks and started reading, you know, what people reported their symptoms were when they had panic attacks. And I'm like, this is exactly what I've been going through. It wasn't getting better. It, you know, I was having these episodes almost daily, you know, I'd drive, I'd be driving to pick my kid up from daycare. And all of a sudden I'd have to pull over into a a parking lot on the side of the road and just be like, do I need to call for an ambulance here? Or can I even go with another mile to pick up my kid? So, I mean, this was almost a daily occurrence for, you know, going on a couple of months. So finally I sat down with my primary care and I said, is there a chance that this is anxiety? And she's very open to the mental health aspects and how they can affect you know, you physiologically. So, you know, we talked about it, you know, really narrowed down to, yeah, I absolutely am having panic attacks, which I had never dealt with before. So it was a very, very scary couple of months for me, for my family, uh, because we didn't know what was going on. All the tests were saying nothing was going on. When really, in reality, you know, my brain is causing these physical symptoms, which I didn't even realize was something that was possible, which was probably the scariest part for me is because not for a second was I thinking my brain is causing this. There's something wrong with me. They can't find it. And that in itself causes even more anxiety because nobody can tell you what's going on with you, but obviously something is going on with you. And it's frankly terrifying. So finally we got me on a a low dose med, which has really, really been helping. I started therapy, which I think just about everybody on planet earth should be doing. And those things have really, really helped. You know, I haven't had the episodes. Once in a while, I'll have a situation where I'm obviously not comfortable, you know, like this right now. And I recently went on a big golf trip with 20 guys. We went out to Utah, Nevada, and I'd never done anything like that before. The first night I went to bed early because it'd been a long travel day and I'm laying in bed and a lot of this stuff is happening. You know, I FaceTimed my wife. Uh, She kind of talked me through it. I hydrated. I did some breath exercises and things like that. And everything got better. And from there, the trip was great. I loved it. But it is something that, you know, I continue to deal with on a much smaller scale than what it started out to be. So I'm I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the help of, you know, my primary care who stuck with me, you know, when I was coming in every week or every couple of days at certain points. And just the help that's out there that a lot of people I think are afraid to explore through therapy. I'm not one of these people who wants to be on meds my whole life or anything like that. I'd like to get to a point where I don't need that, but right now I still feel like I do. So I'm going to continue that as a very low dose, but I would like to get to a point where I don't need that. But if it is a situation where I do need that the rest of my life to feel baseline good and avoid these situations where I'm having these physical symptoms, then that's fine. I've got a son. I've got another one on the way. 
I need to feel as good as I can so that I can be the best for them. And that's kind of been my focus throughout this whole thing. One thing I'm starting right now is I've let my health get away from me. Uh, you know, four or five years ago, I was in peak physical health in my life. And, you know, I'm just thinking back, what has changed to possibly cause some of this stuff? That's one big thing for me is letting my health get away from me. So right now I'm really focused on getting my health back. I'm back in the gym. I'm eating better. I'm hoping that that can really just get me even closer to where I can just move forward feeling good most of the time, but still having these things to help me along the way through therapy, meds, whatever it may be. You know, my story for the first half of this year was going through all that. You know, through that time, you know, I'm trying to play golf. I played three rounds of golf this year with a heart monitor hooked up to me, which is very different. Doesn't necessarily allow you to focus on the shot in front of you because you're like, well, okay, I don't know what's happening to me behind the scenes, but I still want to try to do this thing that I love so much. You know, my game was okay throughout that. I don't want to blame the anxiety and things like that on a drop in my play, but there there has been a noticeable drop this year. But I do think that a lot of that has come from the second, like a little itty bitty piece of doubt that comes from that anxiety creeps into your mind, that affects everything. And that's really the biggest thing I've had this year is, yes, I played a fairly high level for an amateur, but there's just been this little nugget of doubt in there all year that has affected my play. And that's okay. You know, that's something that I can work through and that I am continuing to work through. If I'm a two this time next year, big deal. I don't care. That's fine. I'm still playing at a pretty high level. I would like to, you know, continue to get better. I think everybody does, but that's one of the things I've noticed. That's one of the more lasting effects, at least in regard to my golf game is that there is just that little piece of doubt that if you'd have talked to me last year, when I was playing probably the best golf of my life, that wasn't there. I mean, I'd step up to a shot and I'd tell you what I was going to do. And, you know, most of the time I would do it, that confidence just hasn't been there this year. So that's a big thing that I'm going to continue to work through and something that, you know, kind of in the off season is going to be my focus along with my health this year. Well, thank you for sharing that, Zach. Kevin, I'm going to kick it to you, but first I just kind of want to frame this in the sense of, isn't it interesting how the output, the experience is very physical. So the natural response is to check everything physical. I guess let's start there, doc, because so many of the people you work with experience physical symptoms. It's linked to, you know, our brain and our parasympathetic or sympathetic. And I'm sure we'll get into that, but maybe just start Kevin. If, if Zach was sitting in your chair, where would you start? Cause this might seem extreme for some people, but I bet a lot of people have experienced this exact thing and maybe don't talk about it. So I'll just kick it to you, Kevin, and see where you'd start. Well, I appreciate that, Evan. So Zach, I appreciate you sharing. It's very vulnerable of you, especially as a male. You know, we're socialized not to say these sort of things, especially publicly, right? So kudos to you, man, because ultimately you're going to help tons of people. And I know you probably know that, but I don't think you know how many people you're going to reach because of your honesty and transparency. So I appreciate that, especially as another guy, but also as a mental health professional. So with that being said, construe what I'm about to say is not giving you any medical advice per se, right? But Evan asked me a very good question. So if I were seeing you, Zach, based on everything you said, I would not have any concerns whatsoever about being able to help you successfully at all. And the reason I say that is because you describe panic very well. So if I were working with you, I would probably not spend as much time on golf per se. 
I would spend more time on the anxiety relationship as it relates to panic because what's happening with your golf game, I can definitively tell you that it is completely related to this pattern that is formed, right? And I want to give you some encouragement in that because we know definitively in my area and my specialty that panic attacks can be eliminated, right? So, you know, I want to just encourage you by saying with the right sort of interventions and whatnot, that's not something you kind of have to deal with. It's something that you can eliminate with the right intervention. So just to give you some hope and some encouragement there, the first thing, Evan, that I would start with is kind of psychoeducating Zach on what the relationship between anxiety and panic is. Like, you know, the last time I was on the train, we talked about anxiety and performance anxiety. But one thing we didn't talk about is the relationship between anxiety and panic, because there's a very intricate relationship there. And let's put it this way. The listeners will like this, I think. When we think about a panic attack, a panic attack is what we call a false alarm. The fear response and panic are literally the exact same thing. And that's interesting because if you think about being in a fire, you have fight or flight or freeze, depending on you know the sort of danger that you're in, but a fire would be more so fight or flight. And like you said, the autonomic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system floods your body with chemicals and whatnot to prepare you to take effective action, right? So we can think of being in a fire and say, well, that's adaptive because I'm in actual danger, right? If I'm on the golf course, I'm not in danger, which we'll get to in a second. But understanding that basic fear response as adaptive, heart racing, heart palpitation, shortness of breath, lightheadedness, dizziness, a tingling sensation, numbness in my hands and feet and extremities, right? feeling like I can't breathe. Zach, here's the irony. Having you become your own sports or clinical psychologist on the course would be kind of my first plan of action by teaching you that those symptoms happen when you're in danger. But ironically, you don't pay attention to them because we're paying attention to the danger itself or getting away, fight or flight. The irony with panic is the panic attacks and fear are the exact same response but I'm not paying attention to threat if I have a panic attack, which you illustrated, Zach. Why? Because there is no danger. Therefore, my attention shifts to my own body and my perceived inability to cope. So that intensifies all that arousal in your body. Evan mentioned the physical sensations. So what happens is this feedback loop. Now I'm starting to be hypersensitive to those physical sensations that I have, right? Which gives me a pause now, like Jaws music, like, uh-oh, there's my heart racing again. Uh-oh, there's my stomach again. Is it about to happen, right? creepy fingers, maniacal laugh, and all of a sudden, boom, I'm telling my body via anxiety to prime the pump for panic attacks. See, that's the thing. Anxiety primes the pump for panic. In other words, you can't panic without experiencing anxiety in advance. That's huge, what I just said, because that's important for unlocking how you eliminate it. So I'd start there, Evan, right? Like the psychoeducation piece is huge, but then we would go into the cliff notes would be more so, Zach, helping you identify triggers, of course, like when it happens, where you are and things like that. Cause see, there's three parts to panic. There's three parts to anxiety. There's three parts to anger. There's three parts to sadness. So we got the physical sensations, how I feel in my body, right? Which is very uncomfortable as you illustrated. We have the cognitive or the thinking component, especially in golf. The one we talk about the most is what you're saying to yourself, AKA self-talk, but also the behavioral component, what I do or don't do. And those three parts all need to be intervened, right? So we need to do something about all three facets of that emotional experience to teach you, A, we can eliminate panic attacks. B, we gotta confront all three of those systems, right? Teach you how to think more flexibly as opposed to positive, another conversation, and then confront the situations that trigger panic. So once you understand how to eliminate, not keep at bay, 
but eliminate panic and eliminate any sort of signals that give you a sense of safety. We call those safety signals, keeping like a Xanax in my pocket or making a phone call to my safe person. Like all those things give you temporary relief, but ironically they backfire and perpetuate the cycle. So ultimately when you learn how to navigate those things, right? Then you start addressing the golf piece and saying, okay, we got to sketch out how you're approaching golf and looking before you even get in the car, Zach, before you even go to the course, what are the sensations and whatnot and the thoughts I have and the behavioral responses that I have in advance? And you start using the same sort of approach so that you approach your golf game the same way you would with just panic in general. So that's kind of like an overview, somewhat of the cliff notes, but that should open it up for something. Doctor, that's great. And what about stress? So we talked about anxiety to panic. Maybe what is the difference between stress and anxiety? And I, and I guess from a golf example, if I told you guys, links courses with lots of water and lots of trouble stress me out with the driver, right? But how do I know if it's stressing me out or if I actually have anxiety? And I'm curious to get your thoughts, Doc, and then Zach, go ahead too. So I think everybody will yeah. say they've, they're stressed. Because I would say stress. I yeah, Not everybody I'm will admit to having anxiety. How do I understand that? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a common one, right? So I guess the short answer to that, honestly, Matt, is this. Think about the definition of anxiety. Anxiety is also known as preparatory coping. So anxiety is a future-oriented emotion that includes thoughts of uncontrollability and unpredictability of future events. Oh, shoot, I got eight coming up. I hate eight. What if I, you see what I'm getting at? What if I double bogey? So I say that to say that's anxiety, right? Spreading about something that hasn't occurred yet in the future but anxiety is helpful. And Evan and Mike, man, y'all know I've said this, but anxiety is not bad. It's not something to be free from. It's something that you got to learn to regulate, to propel your performance, right? Episode 166, like you said. Yeah. But stress, on the other hand, is really some sort of situation or occasion setter that triggers a negative emotional experience, right? So things piling up, like Zach mentioned a number of different stressors that are like top five, right? Like childbirth things with home, work, like all these sort of things trigger stress because it's triggering this sense that you have to take effective action to deal with something in your environment. That could be anxiety, but it also could be anger. It also could be frustration. It also could be these other emotional experiences, but the key is recognizing what the emotional experience is that's triggered by the stressor. Can you expand real quick before we kick it to Zach to respond to everything you've said, because you said a lot of amazing stuff already. You said adaptive thinking, yeah, not just positive thinking. Yeah, and we've been hearing this theme a lot key. with past guests. I think that's you know positive thinking has been something talked a lot about on this show, but also in a way to we've talked about positive thinking in a way of productive thinking. Number one sports psychologist in the world, Dr. Bob Bertella, told us if you do nothing else, focusing on what you're trying to do, focusing on your target is going to put you in a better spot than avoidance. It's almost uh, like right. situational productive. Right. Yeah. But help us yeah. understand the difference because that was, that struck me because a lot of people just think about positive yeah. thinking, talk about adaptive thinking. Yeah. Yeah. The short answer to that, Evan, and you're spot on, right. Is that people drink the positive self-talk Kool-Aid. The problem with positive self-talk is that positive self-talk can also be unrealistic, right? An extreme example, which is, you'll laugh at this example, but if I'm at a par five and I'm at the T, and I say to myself, because I'm drinking the Kool-Aid, oh, yeah, this is a hole in one, bro. I'm telling you right now. That's just as bad as saying I suck. Why? Because neither are true. 
So if I say something positive that has no evidence to support it, I'm setting myself up for failure. Flexible thinking is being able to determine different alternatives. I'm going to have a positive perception of what I expect to happen, but it's going to be realistic in nature, right? Saying good golfer, bad shot is one of the most succinct and powerful things you can say. Why? Because that was a horrible shot, but my performance isn't my identity. I'm still a good golfer. You see the difference? Mm. That's, that's true versus me saying, hyping myself up. I'm the best golfer God's ever created. Are you though? Is there evidence to really support that, right? How many green jackets do you actually have, right? So, so it's like, like, that's not true. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what has struck you, Zach? Because we haven't even gotten really into your experience with golf. You mentioned it a little bit, but what I picked up on with you, Zach, is you said little creeping of doubt. And when you said that, I thought, you tell me if I'm right. What I thought you were really saying is that little creep of doubt was anticipation of is this going to be another episode? Is this going to be another panic attack? Am I going to be able to handle this? Is it going to creep into golf now? Right? So I guess that's my first question for you. And then what struck you the most with what Dr. Chapman has said so far? Sure. So for me, I, you know, golf has always been my happy place. You know, it's when I was a kid, it was something's going on, you know, at school, home, friends, whatever. I'm going to the golf course and I'm going to hit balls until my fingers bleed. And I, and I did that a lot. So, you know, throughout this, when this all started happening, you know, there was a time where, you know, conversations with me and my doctor were saying, you know, maybe I shouldn't golf right now because we don't know if it's necessarily something that my health can take at this point, because we were still wondering if these were physiological symptoms. So when I was finally able to go out and play and I was able to shed the heart monitor that I was hauling around playing golf, wearing things, you know, weren't really clicking, you know, part of that was kind of what you said, where before I even, you know, put my shorts and a polo on, it was, am I going to even be able to get through nine holes? Am I going to be able to get through four or five holes before something takes me out of this, or I have to call somebody to come get me? That was certainly part of it. There was a miss that started happening and it was a very consistent miss that I had never dealt with before. So then that crept in as, okay, am I going to be able to figure out this miss and, you know, get back to striking the ball, you know, the way that I know. So it, it was really just kind of compounding. And I think if this had happened a year ago before the panic attack started, this year has been a toe. You know, I've been, I've been hitting a toey. I've been a Healy guy if there's a miss my whole life. So I don't know where this toe is coming from. But a year ago, I'd have been able to, you know, go to my coach and have, you know, one lesson, just get some good eyes on me, make a little tiny change and I'm hitting the ball good again. Whereas this year it was all of a sudden, oh, I hit three balls off the toe on the driving range. Am I ever going to be able to fix this? And that's just knowing that I have anxiety and that these things are happening where doc said, you know, anxiety can be a, not necessarily a weapon, but a strength for me, I haven't gotten to that place yet. So mine was still, am I ever going to feel good again? Am I ever going to be able to handle situations the way that I used to, that part did creep in a little bit. And, and that toey thing has kind of plagued me all year. For the most part, that's been the biggest lingering thing in my golf game is whereas I'm usually pretty good at self-diagnosing, self-correcting, even on the fly in the middle of a round, I can usually get it to a point where I can work it around a course and, you know, keep it pretty decent. Where this year, you know, it's, I hit one off the toe on the second hole and now it's over. I don't have the confidence 
the anxiety builds up. I'm not having these panic attacks from it or anything like that, but the anxiety is there. It's such that it doesn't allow me to go to a place where I know I can fix this. It goes straight to, well, this round is going to be trash. So there is definitely some of that that has crept into my golf game. And again, I don't want to blame poor play on, on that, but it is a part of it. I do think that it's been really hard for me to dial things back to a place where consistently I'm just hitting the ball the way I know that I can. Think about the difference of what you just said, Zach, sorry to interrupt, but what you just said, I think validates what Kevin said of before a year ago, you were a good golfer that hit a bad shot. And now because of the feelings of anxiety or those lingering effects of anxiety, now you're a bad golfer with a bad shot that you don't know if you'll ever fix. You see the extreme. Yep. And this oh, is yeah. what I think doc can really help us with, because I were, I really want to hammer this home today. Someone might be listening and think, well, I've never had a panic attack. So this doesn't apply to me, but everyone can relate to having a miss or being in front of someone or being embarrassed. And I think everyone's looking for the skill to be able to shake that off have a short memory and continue to perform, if not perform better after that point, then be hanging on, assuming the worst case scenario is going to happen. On top of that, Evan, guys, it's dealing with the unexpected, right? You said you were a heel misser and then you go to a consistent toe misser. And for me, we talked about this recently, you know, so Zach, I'm a scratch player. I played division one and I'm a pretty good putter, but this year I call it anxiety, call it stress. There was rounds like those eight to 15 footers, especially for birdie. I was just coming out of these putts. Like, and to me, I was like, wait a minute, where did this come from? What's going on? Yeah. Wait a minute. I'm a good putter. I'm not. And I'm missing putts by two, three feet. Never had a chance. So doc, like, I guess in terms of the unexpected, how do we immediately deal with it? Because it was getting negative for me. It was just boy, you just can't putt anymore. You don't practice, get a different putter. Like you're weak mentally. Like what is, how do we step, step away after that round, for example? And what's the immediate steps for our listeners? Like when things come out of nowhere, like for Zach and I. So let me say a few things. Let me address what Zach was saying. Then I'll address the the unexpected. So a couple things I'd say, Zach, and and Evan, you, you said this very well, but doesn't have to be panic, but in the case of panic, I want you to realize something though that's very important. You didn't use this term, but the way panic works is that typically over 65% of people who do experience panic, they develop what's called agoraphobia, right? And agoraphobia is anxiety about being in places or situations like golf, where it would be difficult to escape or avoid it if I were to have a panic attack, right? So it'd be embarrassing if I were to have a panic attack at say Target or a supermarket. So my brain develops a memory association for that panic attack or situations, right? So it's like, I don't want to have a panic attack there. That'd be embarrassing or it'd be hard to get out of that situation. So think about golf in that regard. A memory association is posed where your body and brain are going to remind you of that panic attack or those panic attacks in said context, right? So, you know, I think that that's huge and very important to consider is that your brain is reminding you when you're on the course of what happened in the past, right? So I would say if I had to guess a percentage, I'm just making this up, I would not discount, this is good news, but I would not discount poor play, relatively speaking, 
as the anxiety. I think that that's 90 something percent of it, honestly, is what your brain has taught you about the sensations you have in your body. The second thing I'd say about that real quick, Zach, is that I think my guess is that you have what I call high anxiety sensitivity. Now, let me explain what that is. Anxiety sensitivity is the perception that the bodily or physical sensations, right, and the thoughts associated with anxiety will lead to negative social consequences. In other words, if I have those sensations in front of my buddies, if I have those sensations in front of a crowd, that's going to lead to catastrophe, right? Keep that in mind that that has to be addressed as well. And to your point, Matt, I think that the unexpected, here's one of my quotes that I tell athletes that I work with. When you think about elite level athletes, they always select self-talk statements that they're going to use way in advance before they even get in the car. And I think part of the issue is that we prepare for the unexpected by preparing for the unexpected. We have to do what other golfers aren't doing. In other words, I have to identify my strengths and come up with a handful of memorized statements that I can always pull out of my brain when something's going wrong on the course that despite the shot I had, I can use it and say it immediately. Reset through breathing, of course, to decrease that arousal, use that statement, boom, and move on to the next shot. So I have to download those things in my brain and do way more mental work off the course so that it's just playing golf when I'm on the course. All right, guys, stay seated. Keep those seatbelts fast, and we're going to keep this train moving in a second. But for now, we're going to take a quick stop. Got a quick question for you. Do you know someone or do you yourself have golf clubs where you're like, yeah, I probably need new ones, but I've had these old golf clubs forever, and you're kind of wondering what would happen if you upgraded but maybe you don't want to spend the money that's required in upgrading. I felt this way a million times. I used to work with TaylorMade. That's how I started my career. So I was the guy that was fitting everybody with their new clubs. They were always asking me, Evan, what clubs should I buy? Should I buy the new ones? Should I buy the year-old ones, the two-year-old ones? So I've been doing this for years, and I actually was asked to be an advisor for Sticks Golf when they first started, and now they're one of the fastest growing companies in golf. Okay, Sticks Golf is a direct consumer golf club manufacturer that's cutting out the middleman and giving you a full set of brand new matte black good looking clubs. They do have silver as well, if you don't like the black look, that basically gives you an entire set of clubs for under $800. If you don't need a full set, you can buy their wedges, you can just buy their woods, you can just buy their bag, you can just buy certain clubs, you can buy anything you want from them. But the coolest thing is you can even pay monthly. So tap that link, make sure Sticks Golf knows the Park Train sent you, and then either enter the code TRAIN for 10% off, or if they're having a bigger sale on the website, you're welcome. You don't have to enter any code. Just through our link, get 20 or 30% off. So get yourself golf clubs that'll help your game without breaking the bank. I'm telling you, I've hit the clubs. I got my fiance these clubs. She smokes them. They're good quality clubs. You don't need to buy from TaylorMade or Callaway or Titleist for them to be good golf clubs, okay? They know how to do it. They're all using the same manufacturers anyways. So tap that link in our show notes or our bio at The Par Train and get yourself golf clubs without breaking the bank. All right, let's get back to the show. You can't rely on a physical strength necessarily because that can come and go. Some days you could be a great driver of the golf ball. You go through waves where maybe your short game picks you up more. Maybe talk about that because I think some people might hear, you know, what are my strengths? 
And I bet you just like the doctors and just like we were talking about today, we tend to go to physical first. Right. So maybe dig into that a little bit to make sure that our pre-round prep with our strength doesn't actually right. create an unexpected outcome and create that cycle. So if I hear you correctly, Evan, you're basically saying, how do we address over-reliance, right? On a specific thing I say to myself or a specific area that I'm really strong in a 10 out of 10 and how that can backfire. I think that's what I hear you yeah. saying, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, so that's a good question. So let's put it this way. If I'm an elite level golfer or an elite level athlete on any level, you got to play devil's advocate in order to get yourself to say the right things to yourself. What do I mean by that? If you had a worse enemy, watch you play golf. If they hate your guts, they can't stand you. They would never want to break bread with you. What are five things they still could say about you, about your ability on the golf course that they'd have to agree with, right? Mm. So that's the sort of versatility you have to have as an elite level athlete that, you know, I have great course vision, right? I have an amazing putting IQ. I have, like, I'm making those up, but those are actually relevant ones. But you want them to vary and speak to different facets of your game that way. See what I'm saying, Evan? You can yeah. pull those out when you need them, and it applies to the entirety of your game, and you're focused on your process, not the outcome at that point. Yeah. Well, one example that might help some people, too, and I'll kick it to you, Sarm, is I've experienced this year, and Zach, you sent us this in your message about how you've grown a bit of a following on Twitter, the expectations of people following you added a ton of unnecessary pressure and interference. I've experienced that a lot this year. Maybe Serm has two on the greens. Who knows? It's funny because this is why I brought that up, Kevin, because my strength was always my attitude. My strength was always my mindset. People might meet me and they think, oh, he's the mental game guy, right? So then I had this pressure of, I'm not allowed to get frustrated. Oh my God, you're getting frustrated? Like, this is what you always talk about. Now you're being a hypocrite. You can't get yourself out of this. Now, like, who are you? So it was even worse. So this year I've had experiences very physical. And this is why I want to bring this up because not everything is linked to a thought, which links to a spiral, which links to physical. Some things like Zach experienced start as physical because they're almost unconscious based on the memory associations you described. So one example for me was I'd be in a member guest. I'd be in these, you know, the important week and I felt gun shy. Like I couldn't swing, even though I'm telling myself, just swing, just swing, commit, commit. I know why this is happening. I can't commit, but it's confidence is a really tricky thing because a lot of people think you have to be hitting it good to be confident. But I found when I'm confident, I hit it good. And it's a very challenging thing when you're seeing bad results in front of you or a miss you're not used to, or a putt that just dumbfounds you. I think that's what people are looking for is how can I commit on the next one with the same level of confidence when I really don't have any idea where it's going to go, which creates anxiety, which suddenly attacks my identity, which creates embarrassment. Now, what did you call it? A social consequence, negative social consequence. And that's when I feel like, whoa, I literally don't know how to hit a golf ball right now. I went from being competent to totally incompetent because of that cycle. So I just threw a lot at you, Doc, but what are your thoughts on that with identifying that physical spiral and helping your athletes maintain some confidence and those versatile thoughts to give me tools beyond that moment 
so that it doesn't turn into a bad round. Maybe it turns just bad hole. Yeah, that's a tremendous question, Evan. I think in many ways, again, it's really important, and this is easier said than done, but it's a necessity, and the greats do this. And again, most people are average, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the thing is, is that people who are elite, athletes and people in general, prepare differently than other people. So I have to be very diligent about the things I'm feeding myself. I have to see the things I need to say to myself on the course and off the course. And I have to prepare for that before, during, and post-competition. So in many ways, first of all, I think one thing I'd say to what you said, Evan, is keep in mind that you mentioned the physical or it might be unconscious, et cetera. Those relationships are bi-directional, right? It might start physical, but physical leads to thoughts and vice versa, right? It could be a bad mechanic and that leads to physical symptoms and vice versa, right? So there's this bi-directional relationship. So part of it is identifying by putting yourself in the situation, what happens first and what is it that's triggering me? So that's step one, right? Then I also have to identify what the thoughts are that I'm having in that situation and then what that leads to. So I gotta be a detective if that makes sense. So in other words, I gotta start paying attention to my thought life and my mental game, if you will, when I'm playing. Now, in terms of the confidence that takes you beyond that, I think the key is developing a mental routine that you stick to the entire match. Does that make sense? So in other words, it's not like I'm going to have a whole specific thought process. It's more so I have to get at the breakfast table in the morning and know in advance that I'm going to breathe. I'm going to use these five statements, hypothetically, that are going to be locked and loaded in my brain. I'm going to have a retrieval cue, which is another conversation that when I see it, my brain is going to trigger me to do the right thing at the right moment when I'm playing. And I'm going to do that throughout the entire round. So basically that confidence stems from number one, separating out my performance from my identity. Rule number one, I'm not my game. (laughs) So that's number one. And number two, coming up with a mental routine that I lock into when I'm playing, despite the level of challenge that I have, who's with me, right? What group I'm in doesn't freaking make any difference what it is. The bottom line is that elite people have a process that they follow, period. It doesn't matter what the stakes are. I follow the same mental process every single round. Zach, do you have some mental routines you've been working on lately that you could share with the listeners that you're kind of leaning on? Yeah. in, In terms of my golf, before I go play, what Evan had said and what Doc had said is a lot of what I tell myself is whatever I shoot today is not who I am. Who I am is how I behave on the golf course, even if I'm not playing well, if I'm a good playing partner, if I'm encouraging the the people playing with me, who I am is a good husband, who I am is a good father, who I am is a hard worker. And that's really hard for me to separate that. I'm a plus handicap that shot 80 today. And all of a sudden, who I am is somebody who shoots 80. And I wanted to kind of piggyback off of what Evan was saying. I have really bad imposter syndrome. So I got down pretty low last year. I got pretty hot towards the end of the year. My handicap got as low as it's ever been. I, I was looking at that. I'm staring at my handicap on the app and I'm going, I don't belong there. So that's an issue that I have even before all this panic attack stuff started. Even now, you know, my handicaps come back down to earth a little bit. I'm still a plus, but there's a lot of me that says I just don't belong here. And it's because most of my life I wasn't there, but I worked really, really hard the last couple of years to get there. 
but I still have a lot of that. I'm an imposter in this realm of golf. But for me, I have to really just ground myself and look at my life outside of the golf course to get me in a good headspace to be on the golf course. I think once you get to a certain point in life, you know, it doesn't have to be kids. It doesn't have to be a career. It doesn't have to be, you know, getting married or anything like that. It's just, there has to be things outside of golf that make golf kind of an extra in your life, unless you're, you know, a high level amateur that's playing in USGA events or somebody that is obviously earning a living doing this. And even them, I think, need that as well. For me, I have to remember those things outside of golf that make golf a plus for me in my life. Being busy, I don't get to play as much as I would like that I was used to. So just being happy to be on the golf course is one of those things that I really kind of have to amp myself up for before I go to the golf course. I'm excited that I get to go do this thing that I love and everything is still fine when I go home. But the second I leave the golf course, my life is still pretty great. And I could have shot 86. I could have shot 66. It, it doesn't matter in the long run. So and that's the biggest thing is just having perspective of golf is a plus in my life. And it doesn't need to become a negative, which it so often can for me and so many other people. One thing I wanted to go back to and get your guys, both Doc and Zach, you talked about the heart, working with a heart monitor. It didn't go well for you, but, you know, obviously, you know, you've been dealing with some tough situations, some tough moments, but, you know, when I think about the game and just where we're uncomfortable out there, like where we're just not committed, Evan, and I talk a lot about after a round, go back and think about every shot, every putt you were not committed to, mm -hmm. right? Didn't like a tee shot, there was some money on the line and that's very revealing, right? You think about what makes you uncomfortable and not committed. So, Doc, I, I thought about, you know, should I wear a whoop or a lot of these guys are doing it because what get tracking data that shows situations for me on the golf course where my heart rates up or whatever, you know, or, or too many steps in between shots. Where can we maybe for our listeners is are these avenues we should go and but Zach also talk about, you know, maybe why it didn't work for you. You think about learning more about what your weak moments out there. So just curious. Yeah. So for me, my heart monitor was, it was something the doctors wanted me to do. It wasn't something where, you know, I need to see what, you know, parts of my game are stressing my body the most. It was, you know, I have to wear this just for more looking a, a week activity. and they want to yeah. look at everything to see, you know, what's happening. Although I will comment on what you said. I do think that there is value in, you know, tracking what situations in golf may stress your body the most. And, you know, that may be something that you identify and work on. Doc, you may disagree or you may agree. I love data and I'm a data nerd, but I do think that people can over rely on data. And I think some people have a hard time identifying data that matters. But to me, that seems like something that could benefit you to where maybe you take an extra second to, you know, take a deep breath before you approach that shot. If you know that that's something that generally stresses you or your body out. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, Zach. I guess here's my thought about it. Uh, the short answer is that it's relative and it depends on the person and their predisposition toward that data and the distress in their body. And here's what I mean by that. I think the question that you have to ask yourself when you use devices like that is what's the function of why I'm using the device? In other words, what's the purpose behind it? If somebody for a decision tree were to answer that and say, well, it's something that makes me feel better, then that might not be the best reason to use it. 
because that becomes what I was saying earlier, a safety signal. Because that means if I don't have it, it must be threatening and I can't golf well, right? That's a problem because your brain's going to remind you when you don't have it. So for other people like Zach, who likes data and whatnot, if the function behind it is to communicate important information that I can fix, absolutely use it, right? So it's all about, is it a safety signal, which is bad, or is it a retrieval cue, which is good? All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break here from a new sponsor, and then we'll get you right back to the show. So we worked with these guys over a year ago. I'm bringing them back for you guys because they're my favorite way to stay hydrated. Now, a lot of people here, yeah, stay hydrated, stay hydrated. I think the key is why do you want to be hydrated? There's a ton of health benefits, but a lot of you might drink alcohol, and when you wake up and you hadn't been hydrating, you're going to feel hungover. And when you feel hungover on the golf course or not, I'm 35 years old now, okay? The last thing I want to feel is feeling hungover. So... I actually reached out to these guys for you. They didn't reach out to us at first, okay? I scoured the internet trying to find a clean hydration multiplier and I just couldn't find it. I looked at like 10 options and all the ingredients were bad. You couldn't pronounce pretty much anything on the label and it was super sugary and just didn't taste good. So I finally found Cure Hydration Packets, okay? My favorite flavor is lemon. It's not sugary, there's no sugar and it's super subtle, but it still tastes good. So I found Cure Hydration. I drink one in the morning, every morning, and on my bachelor party, and again, I don't drink that often, but on my bachelor party, I had one in the morning and one before bed, and I woke up feeling great every morning. So go to curehydration.com, enter the code TRAIN, get yourself 20% off, get yourself some easy hydration. It's a simple pack, put it in your water bottle, you're gonna get so much better ingredients and taste than all the other options that have terrible ingredients and are too sugary. So curehydration.com, enter the code TRAIN, 20% off, stay hydrated. Let's get back to the show. Going beyond the data for a second, makes me think back to my favorite quote you said, and I think, Kevin, you called it your heavy hitter. It was our hook for episode 166. I want to bring it back in case those don't listen to it, but it's not treating your thoughts as facts, but hypotheses. And I really, we've got nine minutes, nine or 10 minutes left. And I really want to use these last 10 minutes to really hammer home someone that hears Zach's story and thinks, yeah, I've had a bit of that, or I've experienced that on the greens, or I've had that with where I can't commit. Does it just come down to doc that I'm going to be okay, regardless of whatever happens and almost embracing the unknown. Like it's almost excitement. What I think we had a guest once that said the nerves means you're excited, which can totally or, change or because you care or because you care. So that simple reframe, not necessarily a positive thought, but just a different look at it can totally transform the feeling of dread to I'm going to be all right, regardless of what happens. Let's see what happens. Tiger talked about that. He goes through his routine then let's see what happens. I'll just kick it to you. I, I'm really intrigued to think, what are the key things that if people didn't listen at all up until this point, what is something that can help them go from a negative spiral to be just as good the next hole, you know, or better? Well, I think you said it, Evan. I think that, you know, the heavy hitter comment that, that I make often, right? And that is in golf and in anything that is challenging in any way and in capacity, you have to learn to treat your thoughts like hypotheses, not facts. And when you treat your thoughts like facts on or off the course, what that does, keep in mind, your body is a gentleman. 
it's going to respond to what you tell it. So if I say something to myself, even if it's not true, then my body hears danger, danger, red alert, right? I know for a fact that the shot's going to be horrible. Huh? Well, your body is going to prepare you by giving you hyper arousal in your body because you just told it that something upcoming is threatening. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it does boil down to treating your thoughts like hypotheses rather than facts. What are the different possible outcomes in this situation? None of which define me and who I am out here when I'm playing, right? So it definitely boils down to the fact that you have to be flexible in thinking, you have to follow your process of playing a game you enjoy, and you have to separate that out from your identity. The bottom line is that too many people who play sports, especially in golf, have this fear of negative evaluation, basically what we call social anxiety. And performance anxiety and social anxiety are one and the same. It's just a specific moment when I'm actually performing versus more generalized. That's what performance anxiety is, right? Performing an action or behavior in front of other people. And I have a fear of negative evaluation. Let's call it what it is. And ultimately, it's because I have thoughts focused on making a fool of myself right? Thoughts of they're going to think I'm an idiot. Thoughts of, well, I'm an imposter. And why am I even playing? My body's always going to respond to that because it sounds like a fact. You are not a fortune teller. You don't have a crystal ball. You're not a mind reader. You're not a psychic. So I got to develop thoughts in advance, Evan, before I even start playing that are based on hypotheses. Could it be that I birdie this one, right? Could it be that I get up and down and it leads to something good this time? Could it be that if I do bogey, I'm still playing a game I enjoy. Could it be that, see what I'm saying? So it's the generation of different alternatives, not sticking with just one thing. That's good. Guys, I, I had this question. I've been wanting to ask you, Doc, and, and Zach, want you to jump in as we kind of close out here soon. Why do we forget to breathe out there? Um, <laughs> on Sunday, I did play, but breathe properly, Doc, because we talk about the deep breath, the deep breath before the shot. And so often now, if you're doing something that's good, but it's coming out of my nose. I was breathing out of my stomach and my diaphragm and holy shit. Like I really felt like the weight was coming off of me over that 15 foot putt that it was yep. it's been struggling earlier. So tell listeners, how do we remember to do it and do it properly? Because boy, you see such better results when you remember to breathe properly. Bro, that's crazy, right? Because it's so incredibly simple, right? And the thing is that so few people do it correctly the whole time. In fact, my motto when I'm working with a golfer is this, since you have to breathe anyway, you might as well do it correctly. Very simple, right? <laughs> Here's the key. The key to the listeners is this. If you're not breathing correctly and making it a part of your daily routine, which I assign the kind of breathing you talked about, I call it five, six breathing athletes like numbers, inhaling through your nose for four to five seconds, exhaling out your mouth for six seconds, basically letting your diaphragm, right? Contract and relax. I tell people to do that twice a day at home when they wake up, before they go to sleep, so that it becomes automatic when they're playing, right? If you're not doing it at home, you see what That's I'm it. getting at? If you're not yep. doing it at home as part of your daily routine, you're not going to do it when you're playing around a golf. It has to be a part of your game at that point, and you do most of the stuff off the course, not on it. Well, isn't it funny how I think the founder of Mental Golf Type taught me this, and keep me honest, Doc, to make sure I get this right. But essentially, a lot of people don't believe in the mental game. They think, well, what does my brain have to do with me hitting it 60 <laughs> yards left, three feet off the ground? How the hell does me thinking something differently going to get that ball going straighter, right? But this is what I learned. Kevin, to your point, thinking something 
tells my body danger, danger, danger. When my body hears danger, 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 I get stressed hormones through my body. Yep. Guess what activates my big muscles to yep. prepare me to fight. Yep. My motor cortex is inhibited yep. because all it wants me to do is run. So all of the muscles, do you think you can swing with shoulders <laughs> only in our big muscles and we lose all fast twitch muscles and we lose all ability to be smooth? I just want to hammer that home because I think a lot of people don't realize that being able to manage our state. And to your point, I think a big theme for today, and I want to finish with you, Zach, but I think a big theme from Doc is preparing ahead of time, having an intention and things in our back pocket to prep us for the situation that we know gives us anxiety in the past, or we've had a bad memory or an experience in the past. Because a lot of people don't think of, again, physical, mental, the connection, it's physiologically impossible to have a great swing if we're telling our body danger. So what are your thoughts with that, Zach? And what are the things that you're working on? And what are you excited to work on after this conversation that you want to commit to for your game? Regarding what you just said, I mean, that's something that we see golfers do every single round. I've got a buddy who is notorious for talking about how he lays the sod over his wedges. And it's because, well, I mean, I'm sure there are things, you know, he could do better, you know, in terms of, you know, his technique and everything, but he knows how to hit a wedge shot. But the second he approaches that ball, he's telling himself, I'm going to lay this whole sod over this. And it absolutely does affect everything that your body's about to do when you tell it, you know, what are the negatives that can happen uh, before you even get there. So completely agree with that. In terms of, you know, my takeaways here, the biggest thing that I'm taking away and I think I hope other people take away from this is Doc said that, and this hasn't even been told to me in the therapy work that I've done is panic attacks, you know, not necessarily anxiety, but that level of anxiety aren't something that you have to just deal with. Like they can go away with, with the right amount of work. And, and that's something I've been thinking about since you said it, you know, early on here in this conversation and something that I really want to begin my work on and something that I'm going to take back to, you know, the professional that I work with and find out if that's something that they believe in. And if not, then I need to find somebody that can, maybe you, Doc, because that's not even something that's ever even entered my mind. I, in my mind, this whole time, it's been, this is just part of who I am and something that I'm going to have to manage the rest of my life. And if there's a possibility that I don't have to do that, then I got to do whatever I can. And other people listening to this, if you have you know, similar situations, we got to do whatever we can to just eliminate that from our lives so that we can, you know, be free and actually accept like joy and, and things like that. And then be open to a healthy, clear minded way of living. So that's something I'm really excited to get to work on because it didn't even dawn on me that that's a possibility. I love that. Last love thing I'll it. say, I've gotten a lot of comments over the years being like, oh, boo-hoo, you guys are playing golf. Like, stop complaining and acting like it's this, like, depressive thing. People have bigger problems, which, <laughs> yes, it's true. But I just want to end on this. This is why I love golf. Because, Zach, what you're dealing with in life, golf is a perfect mirror for what's in our, in our head. 
There is no other thing in the world that will give us that immediate feedback and test us. For me, likely a lot of times over 80 times around for you, probably 70, 60 times around. That's what I love about this show and this game is when I feel my best is when I leave the course and I had a moment like you've described and I manage it and I have an even better performance after the fact, or I leave and maybe I didn't, but I don't feel like it defines me. Those are the practices. That's what golf is. That's what I was just going to say. None of this defines us. It just reveals us in the moment. Yeah. Right. So, so thank fantastic. you both for coming on. I was, I'm really excited. We got to do this. I hope this helps a lot of people. You guys just want to tell people where to find you and I'll give you the floor, each of you, if there's anything that you think you want to reiterate or anything that you want to end on that you think people need to hear before we go. You can find me on Twitter at very average dad. Uh, That's my whole thing. Uh, average it. dad golf. That's really my biggest platform where I spend most of my time interacting with people, which I, I really love doing. Anything else you want to say, Zach, anything that you want to leave people I, with? You know, I think, I think I hit what, what I wanted to say before, but okay. I really appreciate you having me on. I really appreciate you doing this because I know that you have a big audience and I know that there are a lot of people out there, specifically men who are afraid to talk about this stuff, who, who think that they're alone, that they don't have anybody that they can talk about this stuff to. I, that's a problem with men all over the world, I think, is just feeling like we're not supposed to feel this way so we can't talk about feeling this way so if that's one thing that people take away is a big bearded guy from nebraska can talk about this stuff so can you and i think you should find one person who will listen and it'll make a, a world of difference absolutely kick it to you doc anything you want to reiterate or say that you haven't had a chance to and and where people can find you well they can find me i'm in a lot of places I'm, I'm you can locate me i'm on instagram dr kevin chapman twitter at dr k chap that's my sports name k chap and linkedin and all the other places as well but i guess the one thing i would say is to quote alan iverson we're talking about practice man practice <laughs> <laughs> practice bottom line is y'all gotta practice like you, you gotta practice outside of golf so that's automatic on the course that's the last thing i'll say to that just do Love the it. work right Right. Love it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys. This was great. Let's do it again. Great to see thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.